Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 27 of Control the Controllables. It sounds a bit mad saying that. Uh, we started making these podcasts only only seven or eight weeks ago. Um, the, whole, the whole idea was to provide the tennis community um, with an opportunity to try and energise everyone through a difficult period, to educate them and to entertain them. Um, on behalf of myself and John, I'd like to say a massive thank you to you all. We've been blown away by, by the support we've had, uh, by, the, by the nice comments, and I'm so pleased to hear you all finding them useful, coaches sending them on to players, using them as an educational resource. I know that the LTA have used a couple to send on to their coaches and players as well. Um, so we're, we're very grateful, grateful for that. Uh, there's nothing in it for us other than just the pure pleasure. We're, we're thoroughly enjoying doing it. It's a real privilege to be speaking to all these amazing people. And it's also great to be connecting with so many of you guys. So a big thank you. Um, as we've said in previous podcasts, liking, sharing, reviewing, rating, all of these things do help get this into the right hands. So, so any support on that, that's all we ask in, in return. Um, this episode is, it keeps getting better. We've had some amazing guests recently. Judy Murray, the mum of Andy and Jamie Murray, um, as the story to, uh, that she tells and that she has to have gone through what she's gone through to, to have two international world leading performers in any field is fascinating to get that insight and the humility that she has as she tells that story and then as it moves into her own her own life as as Judy Murray and we 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 delve into looking at the real Judy Murray uh, she gives us a lot of fantastic insights into the experiences that the boys have had and that she's had as the mum of the boys and also as the coach of the boys um it's another it's another belter so sit back and enjoy the show guys Judy Murray, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on Control the Coronables. On behalf of myself, uh, a really, really big thank you for your time uh, to come on with us here today. Oh, you're so welcome. Who came up with that, Control the Coronables? It was actually Dan. Uh, Dan said it to me at the start of when COVID-19 kind of kicked in. He said, Johnny, would you like to do a podcast? And he came up with Control the Coronables. I think it's one of his things he uses at Soto Tennis with control, the controllables. So uh, I, thought it, I thought it sounded pretty good. <laughs> Genius. Well, do you know what? We actually, how are you doing, Judy? Welcome to the show. It, it's, it's something that uh, the first week that we brought it out, I actually had a friend of mine got in touch and said, look, you need to be a little bit careful with that. I think it's a bit sensitive given the, given the period of time. Um, but we do talk a lot about control and the con controllables. 
and we've kept we've kept with it it's quite catchy you know people seem to seem to have liked it and and we've really had three things we've tried to kind of energize educate and entertain that's been our three kind of things that we've tried to do we did it for a few weeks we've been really fortunate to have amazing guests like yourself coming on so it's something that we're going to continue for the foreseeable future and we might have to change if we get through this period of time we might have to change the name at some point how's it how's it been during this time for you um actually you know it's been it's been good for me because i spent so much of the last what, i don't know 10 15 years traveling around the world, living out of suitcase, jumping on and off flights, and spending actually very little time at home. So I actually quite enjoyed being grounded um, yeah. and completely switching off, chilling out, no, no work or very little work. I have in the last week, week and a half been creating three new socially distanced tennis programs and creating them and filming them. So that, that's given me something to do, but it's got in the way of all my exercising um, my bike riding I live in the countryside so exploring where I live uh, on my bike has been fabulous fresh air and all the rest of it. the weather has been incredible because you know we usually have pretty crap weather in Scotland so actually being able to get out in the sunshine has been fantastic so I've actually enjoyed the switch off opportunity yeah. which I wouldn't otherwise have had but um yeah, and I mean, for me, this is what retirement could look like, you know, two years, I'm getting to that age. <laughs> <laughs> and Judy, just, just before we get into your tennis journey, um, just a little, just for the listeners, and I know you need no introduction, um, you're, you're a household name in the, in the world of tennis, uh, you're a mum and a coach to 10 Grand Slam champions, you're a coach educator to many. Um, and you're a former Federation Cup captain for GB and a, a real true leader in the sport that we all love. Um, what, what do you think that this time will do for, for tennis going forward? I think it, you know, it, it depends which area of tennis I suppose you're involved in, you know, how, you, how you would see that. But I think certainly for me as a coach and someone who is a coach educator, I, I teach people how to teach others to get started in tennis um, I see a massive opportunity to take things online and to reach much bigger audiences you know we're all having to adapt to new new situation and you know being a bit older and being not exactly a technophobe but quite close to being a technophobe you know I've learned to TikTok um, <laughs> Instagram lives and, and so forth and we've also through my uh, Judy Murray Foundation, which takes tennis into rural and deprived areas, we've created um, a couple of online courses that we can deliver through Zoom because we had all our content backed up on video. So that's been a new, a new, a, you know, a new thing for me. But you know, coming from a country where we have bad weather and very few indoor facilities, I'm used to coaches having to cancel lessons because the weather's bad. Coaches yeah. should never ever have to cancel a lesson again you should have amassed so much content and so many things like this where you can have uh, yeah. great discussions great learning opportunities so um yeah it, it, it depends but obviously my my kids um it, their career is in playing tennis at, at, at an international level and of course that has pretty much uh, been shut down since uh, early march 
so completely different if you if you work at that top end of the game and much of the work that I do with the WTA as a community ambassador where they take me to some of their major events and I create all the workshops and clinics and, and, and so forth around the city that uh, the event is being played at. That for me is all shut down and any of the coach workshops and conferences that I run in the UK or anywhere else, they're all mass gatherings. So, you know, it will seriously affect um, the work that I can do. So therefore being able to do Zooms and Instagram Lives and the online courses um, keeps you connected and keeps you in touch yeah. and that everything doesn't get shut down. And do you think, do you think because people have now almost got used to this as the new norm, I guess two things. One, is it going to be difficult for people to start traveling as, as much again? And two, do you think actually people have realized, you know what, I can do my job remotely more so than, than I realized before? Yeah, I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, everybody has had to get used to working from home if they are able to, to, to do their, their jobs from home. And that would include, obviously, all of us who, who coach tennis. We are finding ways to keep our players engaged and learning and developing and keeping fit um, by using technology, you know, which is great. I think that... Um, the other opportunity that it presents because the international circuit has closed down and because it is difficult to travel uh, long distance even within your own country is that it, it does create an opportunity i think for everyone to focus on more localized competition and getting you know getting people competing more locally and we've just gone back in scotland we were about three weeks before um england going going back and is predominantly singles that can be played at the moment with someone who is not within your household and doubles only if it's four members of the same household or, or, or family. So what's happened just in the last couple of days of that is clubs creating ladders and box leagues. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are old school things that yeah. we all used yeah. to love when we were young and they've just largely <laughs> gone by the by because they're not trendy anymore, you know. Yeah. It's it, it, it will lend itself so much to getting people competing, particularly in singles, yep. which most clubs is probably predominantly doubles. But um, it will also um, it will also get more people playing the game again instead yep. of going on coaching sessions. And so yep. a lot of people just go for a coaching session once a week and they never play the game. I mean, the whole thing about about any sport is learning how to play the game and, and many years now it worried me that we have more coaching than ever before and less people playing the game than ever before yeah no absolutely and i think that that gratitude that i think hopefully people will have as well to be to be so fortunate to be able to get even just get outside the things that we took for granted that, that now is not in place and, and i hope that people will start playing tennis also for the right reasons you know i think a lot of people probably fell into playing tennis because that's what they did and they have these coaching classes and they they do that and and, and, it, and it's not really connecting with their purpose which brings me to i suppose the start for you judy how how did you connect with tennis in the first place and and where does your go back those 25 years or however long it was when you first started <laughs> tennis I how, wish. <laughs> how, how did it how did it all start yeah well you know i actually started playing when i was 10 and uh, I come from the wooden racket era. And, uh, you know, back then it was just 
the regular size tennis court, the white balls, they were white yeah, yeah. When, when I started, um, and wooden rackets, which were quite heavy. So you really had to be at least 10 to be strong enough to be able to wield the, ra the racket. But I was very fortunate because my parents both played um, at our local club and they both played for the county. So okay. they showed me how to play. They weren't coaches, but they taught me how to play. Um, and as I got quite good at it, I was allowed to play with the older kids at the club um, and in the school team, the club junior team, and then with the adults at the club and in the ladies team and then onto the county team. So I went through all the stepping stones that, that were, were there for me. You know, back then it was a school, a school and club and then district. We have small districts make up uh, our four tennis counties, north, south, east and west in Scotland, and then Scotland, which you can play kind of friendly international sport. Beyond that, it's uh, all the structured stuff is uh, you're, you're part of the GB setup. So I went through all of those kind of stepping stones, but I was, it, it all came through the family, which is why I'm such a big believer in the power of bringing parents and children together into the club. I mean, I think back then, if the parents played, it was just an obvious thing that the kids went along and ended up joining as well. That's not so much the case now. It's more like what you were saying, Dan, that kids get programmed into a tennis coaching activity because the parents want them to be able to play it. And it's not necessarily because the parents played themselves. It's quite a different world now. But I learned to play the game by playing the game, not by being coached. And in, in those days in Scotland, we had no indoor courts, so I played tennis in the summer, I played badminton in the winter. Um, but there was no such thing as a full-time tennis coach in Scotland back then because you couldn't play all year round, so therefore you couldn't coach all year round. So nobody aspired to be a great player or a great great coach. So, um, but I think when I went into coaching, um, and I kind of fell into it by accident, um, I, I started volunteering at our club in Dumbling when the boys were in nappies, and I really did it to get out of the house for a few hours a week. And I wasn't a coach, I was just somebody who played well and wanted to keep active and yeah. wanted to give something back, I suppose, into the sport. And I taught the older kids club how to play the game. I didn't know how to hit the ball because I played Eastern forehand, step in, follow through, your shoulder, slice backhand, you know. Um, so I taught them how you make it difficult for the person on the other side of the net, yeah. make them What's the, what, what are they not good at? How do you put the ball there? Um, because for me, that was always the fun of the sport. Working out who's on the side, how do I disadvantage you? How do I make it difficult for you? So therefore, I am learning how to win. Um, and there's not enough of that anymore. There's not enough of kids thinking for themselves and working out what they have to do and developing variety in their game. It's so much about power and power is everything and I can only win by power. Well, how do you negate the power? If somebody's just better at it than you are, if you don't have a drop shot or a slice or a, an ability to change pace. So I've always been a big believer in having the variety, having giving kids lots and lots of tools that as they get older and they work out what their game style is and their game style will be very closely linked to their physicality and their personality. But you give them options and if option A isn't working for them on the match court, they know that they can change into, into something else. So I've always been a big believer in developing the skills and the variety at a young age to equip players for the long haul. And I think if you look at Andy, Jamie, Ali that you know, yeah. they, they can do everything. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The way I believe it, 
that's how I started out teaching and yeah. I've never heard from that because it's how I like to see the game played with people using their brains. And if you look at the world according to kids now, they have gadgets to solve all their problems for them. You know, whether it's Satna, Alexa, Siri, uh, you know, they don't have to think for themselves and they have too much coaching where they are told what to do. So it's brilliant. Sorry, that, that's brilliant. It's so true. And I, I think the coaching world definitely has almost made, you know, players or young kids coming up that, like you said, they're not able to think for themselves almost and they're going to competition then where, you know, they're not able to um, improvise uh, as well as a kid that maybe has gone out there and uh, playing a lot of matches and for the love of the game, all those things that you're talking about. And before we go in, into the coaching side of things, Judy, what, what, what level did you get up to yourself when you were playing? Um, well, I played for Scotland for many years. I was the Scottish number one for many years, which sounds quite grand, but very few people played tennis in Scotland um, in those days. Uh, although my mum would always say to me, you can only beat who's put in front of you. Um, but yeah, I played for Great Britain in the World Student Games in 1981. I won the... British Women's Hardcore Doubles Championship in 1981 with uh, my great friend Eleanor Lightbody against oh, all, the, right? all the odds and all wow. the top were in it then. I have no idea how we managed to do that. But um, yeah, I was that, that the, I was number eight junior in, in Britain in my last year of juniors. That, that was the kind of level. I wasn't, I wasn't great. What I was good at was I was a very good athlete and I was a very good competitor, very tough competitor, which is you probably see that in my younger son, he's, he's, he's quite like me in that respect. So I was a bit of a run around all day long and get lots of balls back and basically wait till somebody lost to you. I didn't have much in my locker, you know, apart from that, probably because I've never been, never been taught, never been shown how to. Um, so that was kind of the level that I played Wimbledon qualifying once uh, in the doubles. So you were good, Judy. Stop being so humble. Yeah, you were very good. <laughs> I was decent. I was decent. Uh, I'm, I'm not very good, but I won this and I won yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I won that. <laughs> I mean, maybe compared to your sons, that you were you, you didn't get to their heights, but in terms of your tennis. So, did you have an ambition to be a tennis coach, or, or did like you said you, you said you fell into it, and yeah. did you fall into it because of the boys? Do you think? No, it was nothing to do with them. Okay. Um, no, I, I, I was the British University's badminton champion. You didn't know that. I played in Scotland at badminton as well. Didn't know that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think all through my high school years, I thought I was going to be a PE teacher. That was what I wanted to, to, to do. I had a dream to be a tennis player, but it was a pipe dream. You know, nobody in Scotland would, there was no infrastructure, no chance anybody would entertain that. There was just yeah. nothing there. Um, so when I got into my last year at school and my form teacher said to me, she didn't think there was any point in me becoming a PE teacher because the teaching profession, they'd had all the teacher strikes and everything and the teaching profession was in a real mess. And she said, there's just not going to be jobs. It's, you know, whatever. She persuaded me to go to university to do languages. Okay. And, and I did. And um, I mean, I, the French that, that I studied and business studies I studied as well. The French probably helped me when I was traveling as a coach to tennis tournaments. But 
largely didn't use an awful lot of what I learned at, at university. But I, I became a sales rep when I, when, I, when I finished uni. I was working for a confectionery company and I worked my way up to being a national accounts manager. And that's what I was doing when I had Jamie. And I went back to work after I had Jamie. But when I had Andy, I had to travel a lot around Scotland. I couldn't do it. So I had to give up my job. The car went with my job. Moved back to Dunblain from Glasgow. And it was when the boys were, they were 15 months apart. So they were toddlers. And that was when I went across to the club and rejoined the club. Discovered there was still no coaching and started to offer to do a few hours with some of the older kids. And I loved it. I loved sharing my sport and teaching my sport. So I never would have at any point imagined that I would end up with a career in tennis or that my oh, kids yeah. would grand slams. There's absolutely no chance. For me, it was about sharing, paying back, being involved in my sport. And it, it kind of, that was really where it, where it grew from. Yeah. So it wasn't anything to do with Andy and Jamie. And I kind of had to, I went through some coaching qualifications, you know, over the years in order to understand the game had modernized itself and really to help me to learn how to coach better. But um, no, I didn't ever have an ambition to be a tennis coach, but actually I've ended up doing what I thought I'd do when I was at school, which is teach sports. Yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. And yeah, because when we spoke to Jamie, Jamie, we asked Jamie the same question, what's his kind of first memory? And he said his first memory of, of playing was, and I thought it was quite nice, actually, when he said that, he said, I won't say I, I'll say we, because every, me and Andy just did everything together at that, at that point. And, and he remembers being at the club a lot when you were coaching, you know, so it was quite an organic quite an organic start to the tennis almost like running around picking balls up you know that was kind of a big thing that he that he talked about did you did you want the boys to play was that a kind of something that was quite strong for you uh, I wanted them to enjoy sport the same way yeah. I didn't sport I mean you know my mom and dad are both very sporty and they created opportunities for me and my brothers to try pretty much every sport including skiing and skating um, you know, when, when we were young, and I, I did pretty much the same thing with my kids, gave them the opportunity to try everything. And then like most kids between the age of about, I suppose, eight and 10 or so, they start to pick the things that they enjoy, yeah. enjoy the most. And so for Jamie was golf and tennis, for Andy was, was football and tennis. But I'll bring, I'll bring this back to the environment that we created at the club. Yeah. Um, so if, if, you know, when, when my kids were maybe one and two and I started to volunteer a few hours a week, I started to grow the, the, the coaching program or a, a squad type program to create more and more children. And along with that, you realize you need to create opportunities for them to learn to play the game. So we had school teams, primary team, secondary school team, club teams in different age in different age groups there, there were adult teams already I started to learn how to run but because my two were little they had an endless supply of older children at the club who would play anything with them you know table tennis take them to feed the ducks at the duck pond across the road play football in the park you get squash courts uh, treasure hunts water bomb fights they they were if they were at the tennis club they weren't they weren't always on the tennis court they it just was a great place to hang out and yeah. it was a massive advantage to them as the little kids in the club that there were so many older kids for them to to play everything with and yeah. and tennis would come into that as well but i remember when they were eight and nine i tell this story a lot because it's 
I think it's really significant now in terms of the way that the tennis, junior tennis world has gone. You know, when they were eight and nine, they were playing in some under 10 competitions um, in Scotland and some in England, some of those Adidas challenge things. Don't you remember them? There were 16 yeah. draw, forward draw, back draw. You got four matches across the course of the weekend. They were fab. And, um, but they were also playing in the men's third team. Yeah. Which was, and the men in the team were all in their 60s. So it was three lads, eight, nine, and 11, playing with these three guys in their 60s. Doubles, learning how to work out, how to play against people who didn't play what looked like normal tennis. Um, and you know, old guys, they're sneaky. Um, and they were wonderful learners. And these, these older guys loved having the kids with them. Um, and that was massive. So what they had was real stimulating competition, varied, different people, older generation, learn to communicate as well as play, which doesn't happen much now. Everything is pocketed into two little age groups and you train with the same age group, you play with the same age group. And it, you know, in terms of learning variety and how to communicate and think for yourself, those opportunities are not as great. And I, I do think that if my two were eight and nine now, I don't think the restrictions around the competitive circuit would inspire them one little bit. I'm quite sure they would go off and, and find something else to do. But to go back to under 10 competitions in Scotland, we had nothing. I mean, when I started at the club, um, I don't think we even had under 12 things. I mean, maybe we starting under 12 things, but we didn't have under 12 leagues. And I looked and I thought, gosh, my kids are five and six. I, I, you know, when they were five and six, and, and I remember Andy saying at one point, I'm fed up playing with you and Gran. I, I want to play a proper match. And he was double-handed both sides. Yeah. Uh, yellow ball, full court, didn't have the red, orange and green. Um, and he could keep the score because we always played the game with him. And he, he was a bit like Fabrice Santoro, you know, chop on one side, chop on the other yeah. side. And just hilarious. But he could serve, he could do the whole lot. And I thought, gosh, you know, the, the only competitions that we've got at the moment in this area are the leagues in the summer term and they're from the 14th. So he could be waiting for years to play a little match. So I created an under 10 tournament. And right. I invited coaches that I knew from different parts of Scotland to bring kids down and I, 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 I wanted it to be fun and I, I wanted, I thought, right, first experiences, we'll play one short set, um, the older kids at the club umpired for them and the job of the older kids at the club after they'd umpired the set was to bring the score so if it was 6-2, somebody earned six points and somebody got two points, it wasn't you beat you, it was yeah, yeah. that your thing and that's my thing kind of thing and then you'd play somebody else later on. But the older kids that umpired, they had to take the two that played and take them to do football or table tennis or drafts or the treasure hunt or the quiz or whatever it was that they were doing. So it yeah. completely took them away from who won and who lost. And that really came from my understanding of how upset little kids get when yeah. they don't. And in yeah. that under 10 tournament was Andy, Jamie, Jamie Baker, Colin Fleming, Elena Baltasha. Elena Valtasha's first under 10 tournament. She'd been playing SpongeBob stuff up to that point. So I will never forget that. And, and all of those coaches who were very part-time like me, they all went off to their clubs and went, we're going to put something like this on. And that was the start of us having under 10 competitions in Scotland. Right. Amazing, amazing story. Yeah, no, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I, I actually remember uh, uh, Elena um, playing as a junior. She actually came over to my home club here in Ireland with me and uh, was promoting just uh, promoting tennis over here. And uh, amazing lady. Um, 
and that's a phenomenal group of players you just mentioned there as well. But what a what a great group of players! You've, I think you, you you kind of answered the question there that I was going to ask uh, Judy. But even in my memories of growing up at my home club here at Dundalk in Ireland was, as a kid, I'd run, I'd go down to the club on the bike, um, I'd hang out with my mates, and uh, I'd be playing. I'd, I'd be basically hanging out there all day, um, and and I feel now. Um, I'm in the coaching world as well. I think when I look, if if there's something that's not been organised in the club, um, you know, it's it, it can end up where it's empty, where there's nobody there. Whereas I think when I was growing up, and again, I could be looking through this with rose-tinted glasses, it seemed like people were just pitching up, nothing was structured, yet the place was full with people out there just playing ball, having fun, playing matches. Do you think we're in an era now where, you know, everything is too structured, too organised? Um, and do you think that's had, had a, a negative effect or a positive effect on, on the game we play? Yeah, it's a different world that we live in now, um, you know, for, for sure. And it's a very different tennis world. And those days of going down and spending all day at the club on a Saturday and playing anybody and everybody who's there and making up your own scoring systems and your own rules to make that, you know, your handicap systems or whatever they were. Um, yeah. Those things just don't happen anymore. You know, I think that parents so much now want to know that their kids are safe, where they are, who's looking after them. Mm. So it's they drop them off into organised activity. Um, and the whole thing of learning for yourself and phoning your pals and cycling down and playing and going home when you're hungry, the, the, those don't happen um, so much now. Mm. I'm like you, I, I remember, um, you know, at my club, American tournament, you know, you change partners, you play five games, you change yeah. partners every time and getting the chance to play with men, women. If you were good enough as a junior, we're allowed to play. Enough. And I remember the teas afterwards, you know, all the women at the club would bring down the scones and the pancakes and sandwiches and all the rest of it. And you put a pound in, and whoever won the most games at the end of it got, like, got all the money. I mean, yeah. like, we were fourteen or fifteen. That was just, oh, this is the best. Here's this pile yeah. of pound notes on the notes back then. Oh, uh, you know, on the table, and it was just like so much fun. But yeah. I think that we need to get back to that, and I'm hoping that this lockdown will actually make people realise, you know, the we're all in it together thing, appreciating who's around you doing things for yourself instead of waiting for somebody else to organize it um, yeah. for you. And just, I think the bigger the numbers, the more chance you, you have of creating an environment that can thrive and everybody pitches in and everybody feels sense of belonging and part of something and plays, plays their role in it. Because I do think that there are, there are probably many instances where clubs have taken on a coach part-time or full-time. And for the members to step back and go, we've got a coach now, we don't need to play with the kids anymore. You know, we don't need to do that bit anymore. And it's like, wow, you know, that is gold dust in terms of learning how to play the game. So I hope all that comes back, you know, family tournaments, adult and junior competition, all, all that all that kind of thing. I, 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 hope, I hope it comes back and I hope it comes back in a big way. Yeah. No, well, I, yeah. I have, a, I've got three kids. I've got a girl who's just turned 11, a boy who's nine and a little girl who's six. My little nine-year-old's actually, he's learnt very organically through the players at the academy, very similar. You know, he hasn't had much coaching. You know, he's just been out on the courts, on the paddle courts, 
playing different games, doing different things. And that's that's one of my cha- I'm trying to set up lots of team events here and but trying to get people onto that wavelength. And and one thing that it would be interesting to hear your guys' opinions on, because there's so many coaches, we have to get all the coaches on that wavelength because it feels as if a coach is selling a very structured program because that then sets their their career up or, or, or brings the income in, into them. And it almost feels like there's so many coaches and there's so many places now that if a parent doesn't like what they hear at that one club, there's always someone waiting in the wings to say, well, I can... I can give you that. So, so I think that as much as I would love it to go that way, I think there is a, there's a bigger picture thing here that we need to get a lot of coaches on on that wavelength. So, that's Judy. You've got a lot going on. You do a lot of things, but that's your next challenge to try, <laughs> to try and get everyone back to that. We need to have some scheme, some scheme that people buy into because I, I do, and I'm a big advocate of team events at a young age, which I know you are. You know, on these type of things. So, um, if you can find a few extra hours in your week, if you can, <laughs> a lot for you know coaches to you know coaches have got to make it make a living. Of course, they've got mortgages and families to feed and, and all the rest of it. But it it may be that it's something that clubs need to take a bit of responsibility for as well. That if there is a retainer created, that yeah. the retainer is created for running competitions. Um, running club teams or finding other people, you know, being the manager or finding team yeah. caps to create a school team or create the American tournaments. But I think that has to be part and parcel of the, a much bigger part and parcel of yeah. any club's program. And if coaches don't see any financial reward in the competition side for them, of course they're going to keep selling the individual lessons and the squads. And that's probably largely why we've ended up where we've ended up with more, yeah. an overdose of yeah. coaching, not enough competing. Absolutely. Judy, to come back to, to the boys growing up and your kind of early start into coaching, one thing that strikes me with Andy and Jamie, I was a, a, a few years older than them, but they, they were quite high profile quite early because they were really good early. You know, both of them, I believe, were either finalists or winners of the under 12 Orange Bowl. So at what age did you know that they were really good? I know I, I get asked that question a lot. It's one of those questions, you know, if I had a pound for every time I've been asked that, I would yeah. be very bold bird. Um, yeah, you know, they were, they were very good for their age, um, very skillful for their age, and very technically astute. Yeah. Really when they were eight and nine, nine and ten, really good. Um, and... Yeah, they, they both did Orange Bowl. Jamie made the final one year, Andy went the next year, and he won it. And, you know, in those days, Orange Bowl was it's a bit different from it was now. You know, and you got a lot of uh, overseas federations sending a couple of boys, a couple of girls. So it doesn't happen so much like that. Now it's become very expensive to go to Miami at Christmas, Christmas time. But, you know, the boys both got the opportunity to go and do that. And I think that that was a bit of an eye-opener for me because I'd never been to America before. I saw more courts in the park that they played the under 12 boys orange bowl than we had in our entire county i was just like eyes out on stock totally jealous of oh god and the sun was shining all the time and the other thing that was interesting about that orange bowl was that in the run-up to it there was all sorts of tournaments that you could play in 
to, to warm up for it. And some of them were official tournaments, but there were lots of pop-up tournaments mm -hmm. because there were clubs and parks with loads of sports, you know, 20 sports. You had pop-up tournaments for a day for under 12 boys. So you go along, you sign up at nine o'clock and you're likely to be on the court by quarter past, half past nine. Yep. Somebody just get the sign up. Okay, here we go. And I love that. Just love that yep. whole set of, oh, the entry form, send a check, somebody sends you it back, you go, you hang around all day. And I thought this is the advantage of great weather and huge facilities and big numbers, big, big numbers. So, um, yeah, so the, when, uh, when Andy, Jamie lost the final and then the following year, Andy goes, Andy goes without any fear at all because Jamie's been and done it. You know, Jamie did everything first and that was a massive advantage for, for Andy, I think. Um, so anyway, Andy, Andy won it and that was really at that point, the guy that he played in the final was from Czech Republic and his coach came up to me afterwards and he said, uh, your son is a very special player. He said he's very, very special, um, blah, blah, blah. He said, you, might, you must look after him. And I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and and he said, who, who else do you work with? And I thought, well, he'll never know who I'm working with in Scotland. I was the national coach by then, but we kind of had to start a national programme pretty much, much from scratch. Um, and I said, I don't think you would know anybody that, 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 that I work with. Um, and I said, what about you? Who do you work with? And he said, he said, I have been 18 months with Thomas, this boy. And he said, but before that, he said, I was 13 years with Yana Novotna. And wow. it really me that, you know, this kid, the finalist, yeah. he has in his corner a guy who's traveled with him to this major event, who has developed a player from a young age, right through the slams, right, and absolutely knows the journey, knows what to do, and I haven't got a clue. And, and that's when I started to panic a little bit. Yeah. What do we do next? What, and so I, I went with my common sense. I always just went with common sense because there wasn't anybody for me to learn from in Scotland. Yeah. Um, I was having to make everything happen. Um, so I, I thought, right, okay, what do the best under-14s look like? So I took myself off and travelled to under-14 tournaments. I got the chance to travel with a lot of the LTA under-14 teams on the girls' side. Yeah. And I picked everybody's brain and I had a clunky old video camera. I videoed everybody's warm-ups and cool-downs. I, I just tried to learn as much as I can, could from people who'd been there and done it before. And that's what I did the whole way through. Okay, under 14s, okay, we're 13. What does under 16 look like? What am I going to have to put in place? Who am I going to have to bring in? This is for our national program because I don't know if you would remember back then, Dan, but we had so many good kids. You yeah. know, David Brewer, David Paulshaw, yeah. Jamie Baker, Keith Meisner, Graham Hood, and, and just talking on the, on the boys' side, we had lots of great girls as well. You know, Alina Balkasha, Nicholas Slater, Mary Brown, Karen Patterson. Nicola Allen, we had loads of them, we traveled in big packs, everything was an adventure, everything was fun and we were always a team and that had a massive effect on the, the enjoyment for the kids and, the, and the, so many of them staying in it for, for the long haul. But yeah, but I think to answer your question, as you have realized by now, I can take, talk behind legs off the donkey with all this, this story, yeah. but I get asked that a lot and what I will say is that I think that I was sensible enough to know that my kids were exceptional for their age and that, that, that they are kids who love tennis and they're good at it. That is completely different from being 
10 years down the line being a 22 year old who's committing to a career at the top end of the game. It's completely different. So my responsibility was to say, help them to keep improving. What do I need to put in place? What do we need to know? Where do we need to go, et cetera, et cetera. But it isn't really until they, it doesn't matter how good they are at that age, um, anything could go wrong. You know, injury, they fall out of love with the game, their friends are doing other things. They prefer football. You just don't know. There's absolutely no guarantee. So you need to make it fun. You need to keep ensure they're stimulated and they're working hard, they're trying hard. But they don't know until they're mature enough to make up their minds that this is what they want to try in terms of a career. Um, because when you're 12, your tennis is a hobby. And it's yeah. a hobby is something that you can lean if you don't fancy doing it anymore. Or I don't, I don't want to play this week, I want to go and play golf this week, mom. Or I want to go on holiday with my pal. Okay, fine, doesn't matter. When you're 16, 17, 18, and you've committed to the life and business of trying to be a pro player, you need to be old enough to understand how to make that decision. So it's the difference between yeah. being a child and actually being old enough to understand that you can't park it now. You have to bring great attitude, great energy, hard work, every tiny step on the court, every tournament that you go to. And so I think when Andy was 16, he beat his first top 100 player, he won his first futures, following yeah. years US and juniors. These were all good signs for his age Yes. in terms of the stats. Um, and Jamie, as you know, because you've had him on the, the, your show, he, he, he went a different, a different route. He was much, he finished school, he was, um, went quite slowly through the simple side of things and then uh, opted for the doubles route because it suited his personality and it suited all of his strengths on the tennis court. Always better with somebody around him and you, you know him, he's, he's yeah. great company. And yeah. He thrives in a doubles in a team situation. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I think, I think you have to be, as a parent and as a coach, you don't get too carried away at 12 because it's a long haul. And if you look now at the average age of the top 100 players, in the men being about 28, 27, people yeah. in the women. That's a long way from being a 12-year-old. Absolutely. And how, and how there's, there's so many things I want to go into with you, Judy, but how, how much did you drive it? And, and, and I guess with parents that are listening, that is a tough balance, I think, to get. You know, parents that it needs to be driven in some way, but obviously sometimes people go over the top with that. Whereas from the outside looking in, it feels like you got a really nice balance of, of being a driving force, but also allowing the boys to develop their own independence. Yeah, it, it absolutely has to be their thing. Yeah. Um, you are there as a parent, whatever walk of life your child chooses to go down, you're there to help them to open doors, to help to make it happen. Because that's what you're appearing for. You, you create the environment for them to to, to thrive in but you have to give them wings so they can so they can fly so they wanted to go down the tennis route that was what they decided they wanted to do and and I did whatever I could to try to help them but I'm I have to say I, I, I get so pissed off I mean I just was tagged with the pushy parent thing right from the very first mm -hmm. week I think that and they made the third round of a scrawny yeah. eight-year-old and it was you know because of pump a fist mm -hmm. and and uh, bared my teeth in the box that suddenly the media decided to push your parent and all the rest of it. And I'm actually just competitive and there's nothing wrong with being competitive. I've always been like that. Um, but I kind of got tagged with this and I thought anybody who 
knows me knows it's not true. And anybody who understands the demands of the tennis world in an individual sport, they own absolute weight, almost totally on the parent to make everything happen. You know, find the coach, enter the tournaments, find the club, hang around, you know, manage the money, the, you know, all the, the kind of, um, I suppose, um, sacrifices that you give up in terms of your own time to take them to the things that they need to go to. Yeah. But, um, you know, for, for me, it's all I ever insisted on was that they tried their hardest because we were making, we were making big sacrifices financially and, and logistically and as a family for, for it to happen. Uh, you know, and I knew enough, I think, to understand that it's not about the wins and the losses. Of course, you need to learn to win, but you can usually learn a lot more from your defeats. And so I always saw the defeats as an opportunity. But finding the right environment, finding the right coach, what's the right fitness training, making sure you have a physio that you know, look after the body to avoid injuries. All of these things are the parent has to make all of these things happen. They can't do it, can't do it themselves. And when you when your child starts to break through into the adult side of the game, then you have to learn all the business skills and the management skills that go with it. You know, first of all, it's the coaching and the circuit and all that sort of stuff. And then it's how to deal with sponsors and agents and media and budgeting and paying staff and building a team and all that sort of stuff. So over the years. I learned a multitude of skills, I suppose, um, not just on the tennis side, not just on the sports side of the game, but on the business side of the game as well. And you have to, because when they're 18, 19, 20, 21, they want to invest all their energy into being as good as they can be. And they need somebody that they can trust behind them. So uh, I think if I was giving advice to parents, of course, it's all about the uh, understanding that you're in it for the long haul, being supportive, um, not getting caught up in the wins and losses too, too young. It, just see it as long-term development, helping them to improve, always there whether they whether they win or lose. Be ready to open the doors for them if when when those need to be um, opened. But learn as much as you can about what tennis is going to demand of your child and what it's going to demand of you. But it's also why I'm such a big believer in every sport, not just tennis. Yeah. Every sport needs to involve the parents more so the parents understand what the journey is going to look like. Because yeah. I never would, even though I was coaching by that stage, I had no experience of international tennis for juniors. Yeah. Or, I had no idea how much it was going to cost me and how much of my time was going to have to go in, you know, taking them overseas and, yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, and and I, nobody prepares you for that. Yeah. So a big believer in more advice and support for parents. Uh, and, and Judy, uh, uh, what what age were the boys when you um, when you stopped coaching them? When was that that change made from, let's say, when Andy? I think Andy went to Sanchez Casal, was it? Um, fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, he went when he was. He just turned fifteen. Um, when he went um, and he, you know it was Rafa that kind of persuaded him that he ought to be doing more than he was doing in Scotland you know when Rafa told him how he trained four hours a day and yeah. got to train with Moya and New York and Tennis Academy and all the rest and Andy came home from the tournament and basically that was I need to do more I'm going to fall behind and all this 
And so we went to look at some places. He chose Sanchez Casal, I think, probably because he knew a couple of lads there. But it was brilliant uh, for him. Mm. But I, I coached them um, up until probably about 12, 12 or so. And then I realized that it's, it's actually not that cool to be coached by your mum. And it's actually more important to be the parent than it is to be the coach. And it, because I was the national coach at the time, I had so many players to look after. And uh, I brought in uh, Leon Smith. And he was only 20 when he started with me. And he was, right. Yeah, he was yeah. reach blonde hair, curtains down the middle, diamonds. And played good county-level tennis. All the kids, especially boys, thought he was the absolute dog's bollocks in a way that would never, ever be the dog's bullet. But I was always there. He was, uh, so I, I, I pretty much mentored Leon all of his, all of his coaching life. Uh, and very, very proud of everything that he has achieved as well. But he played a big role with Andy in particular, um, you know, going through because way more fun for him to go off to some of these tournaments with Leon and three other boys than it is to go with, you, you know, to go with me, but I still did quite a lot of the trips because I was the national coach, but I always had a minibus full of, of kids, so it helped me as a parent because I never got overly caught up in what my own kids were doing because yeah. I always had loads of others to look after. So I think it, in lots of ways we had a very normal, fun, big number activities with everything that went on in Scotland in those days, and it produced a lot of good players and it produced a lot of good coaches. Um, as well. I think your point there on on yourself as a parent being so busy with other things, what I see with a lot of parents, the, the ones that don't work, who tend to be maybe there's a parent that's at home all day, uh, has more time to almost build these bigger issues in, in their heads, you know, and it's, you know, you being able to almost just things just to kind of slide off you that the boys might say must have been a good position to be in. One thing that I always hear in the tennis world, obviously your story is fascinating because you've got two boys who have, have become global stars, you know, so everyone wants to know what, what, what did Judy do? You know, what did Judy do? When Leon took over, how much input did you still have? And at what stage, if at any stage, did the boys not want to listen to mummy anymore? Uh -huh. It's a good question, actually, because what you have to remember is that when Leon came to me, he came to me to ask if he could come and work with me from time to time. He was 20, he dropped out of college, he wasn't enjoying his course, and he wanted to be a coach. So he started doing some part-time coaching at a club in Glasgow. But he wanted to learn how to be a good coach. He wanted to work yeah. with some of the best players. And I didn't have much money in my budget to be able to pay any staff. Yeah. So, but, you know, I can almost like I can create an apprenticeship for you and I can give you opportunities to travel, you know, trips. I'm bringing people in. I, I started um, a thing called a performance coach development program where I brought experts in from other countries to develop our coaching team, uh, which was brilliant because I learned loads from, from, from them as well. Oh. Um, but I was always, I was always the national coach. I was always, he, he learned as he went along. He, he wasn't, it wasn't that he was a great coach when he was 20. Yeah, yeah. He became a great coach. I mean, nobody becomes a great coach overnight. But what he had was opportunities to, to travel to some of the overseas under 12, under 14 tournaments to go down south, to be part of the training camps um, and so forth. Um, 
you know, and he and he and Andy became very close and great friends. And and you know, he, he Leon spent a lot of time with Andy. Even when Andy was at Sanchez, Leon yeah. would go from time to time so that there was some continuity. Yeah. Um, I would go over also because I wanted to make sure he was doing the right thing. Um, and also with the you know with, with the trips, still wanted him to be part of some of the the Scottish trips um, and to, and to be with us. So um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think I think that there's been a challenge over all of the years that the boys have played in tennis of finding the right coach at the right time because they yeah. are all the courses. You know, I I was talking about this to, to somebody else actually just this morning is that you you know one for one coach to take a player the whole way through is almost unheard of and yeah. coaches have niches that they want to work in whether that's under ten or ten to fourteen fourteen to eighteen transition tour top ten whatever it is girls boys yeah. Um, but we need world-class coaches at every step and every pocket yeah. of the, you know, of, of the tennis journey. And you've got to, you've got to find your, you've got to find your niche, niche first. But I think, you know, Leon, certainly he wanted to learn and he would come back from all these trips or if I sent him off to a camp or a workshop or a conference or something, and he'd come back and he'd be, oh, I want to try this, I want to try. And of course you have to try all these things. But eventually you find your own way. You take lots of ideas from other people and you find what works for you and you form your own philosophy. So he's very much got his own philosophy now, but he's in his 40s now. It takes a long, long time, I think, to become a great coach. It does. To go to take you back, I asked the question about um, which you kindly pointed out to not be a very unique question. So thanks for that, Judy. You didn't you <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I always get asked that question. You know, <laughs> How boring! <laughs> so, ask it a slightly, a slightly different way. I've always been fascinated by this. If I if I started with a story, I I was fortunate enough to play both your boys a few times on the doubles court, and and the one thing that struck me, and the only other player that I've ever witnessed this with was Leighton Hewitt. Like I remember playing Leighton Hewitt when I was fourteen; he was thirteen. And he wasn't that good, but he un, he acted as if he was like the best player in the world. Like he just, there was something inside him. He knew it. And playing Andy, it was the same feeling I got as when I played against Leighton Hewitt. And there was one, I don't know if you remember it, Judy, but we were playing them, I think it was at Edinburgh, me and Dave, against Andy and Ross. And they were five to what we'd beaten them a couple of weeks. It was when Andy was kind of starting to make a bit of a, a move. And we, there were five to up first set, and we won the set seven five. And he shouted out, "How am I losing to these guys?" And he, <laughs> he just couldn't, which was right. Which was right. I mean, he was a much better tennis player than us, but he couldn't work out why we we were beating them. And he kind of actually gave a little shoulder barge to Dave when he walked past. And you, which and again, I think you've done a great job of this over the years. You made him apologise after the match, and and he did. But there was such a strong belief that I felt that he had. And the same with Jamie. And even though I know Jamie had some difficult periods, is there anything that you did, anything that the family did, anything that the environment built that, that enabled them to have such a strong belief? Because traditionally, British tennis players have set themselves some ceilings, but it, it feels as if Andy in particular just didn't have a ceiling at all set in his mind. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think um, you know we're all products of our environment, um, yeah. and I think that 
I think it was very much in Andy's favour that he had an older brother who kind of yes a bit stronger through those formative years and who did everything before him and usually beat him at most things and he all, all he ever wanted to do was beat Jamie that was his through, through the young years I think 14 15 onwards I mean just through this and you know I think having an older sibling uh, definitely helped to make him the kind of uber competitor that, that he is but he was very competitive from a very young age, even playing things like cards and drafts and roughly, you know, the board would be up, he yeah. wasn't, whatever. Um, but I actually think, looking back, that the positive experiences that they had at a young age, because they were very good at a young age, they got used to winning a lot. Mm -hmm. And that builds a lot of confidence. And when mm -hmm. they went to their first overseas tournament in Rouen, in France, which was an under 11 event that was run by Yannick Noah's foundation. Yeah. They went together, they went with John Hicks, who you'll know well, which was a great experience for them. They're young, so for me to let them go yeah, yeah. To, to France in a minibus with somebody that I didn't really know very well, that's quite a big thing for parents to hand their, ki hand their kids over. But, you know, I thought, what a great experience, you know, to go to another country, com compete in a different language, and, and so forth. And, and they were together. So, you know, my biggest fears were probably that he'd lose his toothbrush or he's, or he's forgot to do his teeth or, or, or lose his wallet or, or whatever. Yeah. But they had a great experience and they played so many matches and Andy got to the semis, he lost to Gail Monfils in three sets, Jamie won the tournament, beat Monfils in the final and came home with a little trophy and Andy, like for about three months, it was like, he only won because I tired him out in the semi-final. You know, it was like <laughs> that kind of thing. But... The, the experience was a great one because they made so many friends from other countries. Oh. They won lots of matches. John Hicks was brilliant with them, played loads of football with them, got the whole kid thing. Mm -hmm. And they came home, being pissed off, they came home absolutely buzzing. And then when they went to tournaments uh, abroad after that, they had no fear to go. Yeah. And always did well at a very young age. Yeah. I think that that built the whole thing off of, you know, I'm not afraid to go. So I think nowadays we see so many kids going over and playing, you know, parents spending a fortune, playing things abroad because they want to get international experience. Go when you're good enough. Yeah. Go when you're good enough to be able to compete, not just yeah. I'm here to take part or I'm abroad, therefore I'm on my yeah. and great fun, I get a suntan and where's the swimming pool. You know, so actually this whole thing of building the skills, building the variety, building the tactical awareness through the variety of competition at a young age, without question, served them really well in those yep. young age groups of being able to play the game yep. and be successful. And if you're successful at a, at a young age and you're confident in your ability, then maybe you don't fear. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a but sense that it's just, yeah. you learn how to lose, you know, if you learn how to lose, if you're going constantly and you're not investing enough in yourself to you know to, to develop your game and you learn to lose that's not a good place to be in so i i, I don't I, I i can't give you an exact answer i can just say that that a feeling that, that that was a very important part of it but it's a sense of belonging as well because as you're telling those stories and they're obviously completely normal stories to you because it's your it's your life but 11 years old gail monfils rafael nadal influenced Andy to go to Sanchez Cassell. So 
they they very much belong in that in that world and, and i think it, actually jamie more than andy because and i said this to jamie when we spoke he had a very difficult period not many people come through a difficult period like that to then go on at age 20 21 winning mixed doubles at wimbledon you know so like it, it, the fact that he came came out of that there was obviously something quite strong rooted in there that still kept kept him having the belief that he belonged at the top of the top of the world's game you know and that that almost for me andy won at every level you know i i didn't know andy when he was 12 but i knew of andy when he was 12 and and he was all he was very much kind of on that path all the way through um but to go from that path to off the path to still come through i just uh, for me that seems to be something that's very deep rooted with the belief so you know i think i think the way you've answered it's very well so and and moving into that bit judy how did you because there's another thing obviously that as a parent i'm a parent now it's when you've got a happy kid and an unhappy kid that's quite hard to hard to manage so at that at that point andy's gone on so let's say andy's 15 16 he's already starting to potentially win pro titles you know going deep into grand slam juniors and then jamie at that point was unhappy with his tennis didn't work out how did you manage that when they were kind of always together and then they kind of went separate routes for a while yeah, I think that 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 was difficult. Um, I think you know when uh, for Jamie he was playing he was playing quite a lot of golf at that time as well as tennis. He in his head, I think at that stage he was looking to get his grades at school, pass his exams, and go to American University. Yeah. That was that was sort of what was on his radar, and uh, so he was kind of more focused on playing enough tennis, um, but playing his golf and, um, you know, and, and getting through the exams and Andy was off doing what he was doing in Spain. So, and then Jamie finished, uh, finished his exams, did his stats and everything. And then he just turned around one day and said, mom, I don't want to go to American University. I want to do what Andy's doing. And I was just like, because the sense of what Andy was doing was, killing me it was I was spending I needed more than my salary was yeah yeah before I was taxed on it yeah to cover what you needed in the, in Barcelona and I thought and you can't give one the chance and, and not the other so and and also Jamie and I play tennis very different from each yeah. other so it's not like one environment fits all yeah, yeah. it is something completely different completely different coaching style court surfaces etc etc and it was really, really, really tough. But I think that, you know, what, you have to do what's right for the child at the time. And it's about the person. It's not about, it's not about the other things. It's about, you know, what, what's important to you right now? Yeah. Exactly. How do I, how do we help you to get through the exams? Well, I'm struggling a bit, struggling a bit with English. That, that was Jamie saying, okay, so let's bring a tutor in once a week for a few weeks to help you to get through that. It's that whole support thing. You've got to be there for yeah. what is, what's the right thing to do right, right now. It's never, like, it was never about, I mean, you know, Andy going to, to Spain, who knows if that would have worked out or not, but he was good. He, was, he needed the opportunity to train in the right, you know, he, he had a chance to do something. 
and you can always go back to education right. as well if it doesn't work out because very few people get to a level in tennis where they can make a living from it but i think that the most important thing is that the is the happiness of the the child and i think also letting them make their own choices yeah. you know obviously if you see them heading for a massive fall you're going to step in but if they make the choice and you research it all and you make sure you everything's you know can be done and it's going to provide what they need and if it's their choice and they buy into it you're going to get the best out of them if it's you if it's my choice i go no no you, i don't like that sanchez casal you're going to go to this one because i think the coach is better here yeah no, not going to buy in so yeah you have to listen to them and you have to you have to go through everyone they absolutely if they know you're in their corner yeah. and you apply common sense it's it's yeah. yeah, I mean, it's tough being a parent, you, and you, you never always get it right, but the best thing you can do is talk it out and, yeah. Well, you've, you, certainly, <laughs> you've certainly got a lot right, Judy, because not only have the boys had fantastic careers or are in the middle of their fantastic careers, they're also both fantastic young men, you know, as well, and, and, and that's a big reflection on yourself, you know. So, so now, now we move into their pro lives, pretty early on and i'd love to just get your thoughts on some of those experiences you know your experiences as a mum, your experiences as i guess the coach that started them off you know there's so many so many things and the first one was i suppose out the blue really was jamie winning the mixed doubles at wimbledon in 2007 you know how how was that yeah that was uh well it was completely unexpected because yeah. uh, jamie was he was 21 and he was playing obviously in the doubles and uh, signing in there or not signing and going through the security bag check one morning and uh, Yelena Yankovic was doing the same thing uh, at the same time and they started to chat to each other what are you doing today I'm playing doubles what about you I'm playing doubles are you playing mix no are you no uh, do you want to play yes and off they went and signed in and 10 days later they were the champions it was just um, completely out amazing of Jamie had decided to go down the doubles route in 2006 and when he had decided that that was going to be the right route for him to focus on in terms of a, something that could become a career in tennis, because you can go down that singles route for years and spend a fortune and lose a fortune and be nowhere near the 120 or so that you need to be yeah. have any, to, make, to make any money out of it or make a career out of it. So when he went down the doubles route with right what do we have to do now we need to find a specialist doubles coach and yeah. so went off to try and find a specialist doubles coach there's not many of them around and found louis Caillé, uh and was able to afford six weeks with louis Caillé before i was completely cleaned out um worth every single penny let me tell you it's just i didn't have much money um then so but I wanted to give Jamie that opportunity and I, I totally believe that if you find the right coach and you create the right environment, great things can happen quickly. So I met Louis in Monte Carlo. I watched him. I, he didn't know I was him, but I watched him coaching many doubles teams on the practice course because I was there with Andy and I was just kind of watching him and I thought, God, this guy is so good. He knows exactly what he's doing. Anyway. He did six weeks with Jamie in, uh, and Colin Fleming. Um, Jamie was playing with Colin Fleming at the time. I added Ewan McGinn to that pack so that we got, three people got the benefit out of it so that if I could never ever afford another week, 
doing as the as the coach had yeah. learned in the six weeks and, and, and hopefully he could help the boys a bit more beyond that. And you know, two weeks after that six weeks, uh, Jamie made the final in um, LA ATP losing to the Bryans in the final, playing with Eric Buterak. Right. And so, you know, this is the whole thing, if you find the right person who just unlocks it, makes total sense, very structured, very disciplined, great program. And, and, and of course, Louis still works with, with Jamie and it was Louis that got him to world number one and all the slam titles that, that, that he's got and the Davis Cup and so forth. And he just, as you both know, he's just the most unbelievable tennis coach. But he also, Jamie's like a son for him. They, yeah. they have a relationship. It's, it's uncanny, um, fabulous. By that time, Andy had won some ATP singles titles. He won his first one in 2006. And, you know, he was, he was in 2007, I think he was probably pretty, pretty close to the top, the top 10 by that, by that stage. So it was great for Jamie. He was first again, the first one to win a, to win a slam title, first one to get to world number one. It's kind of, it was kind of like the natural order of things. But um, I mean, it's amazing what, what they've done. It's amazing what we've all had to learn. And you learn as you go along. You don't ever get everything right. But if you get something wrong, you learn from it. You try and make sure that it, 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 doesn't, uh, it doesn't happen again. And 2012 Wimbledon final. How, how was that as a mum sitting in the box? I mean, we all, we all had tears, you know, listening to Andy speak after he lost to Roger. How, how was that seeing just your, your son just so heartbroken and open in front of the world? You know, how was that for you? Yeah, that was, uh, that was, really, that was really tough. Um, one of the, uh, one, definitely one of the toughest moments. And I think that because it was, you know, Wimbledon is, is your slam if you're, a Brit, if, if you're a Brit. He'd had so much expectation and pressure on him from the media, from the fans, from everyone, you know, he was the great white hope for yeah. such a time since Greg and uh, Tim retired and, you know, the he was under every Wimbledon was, I don't, he handled it unbelievably well. Um, but, you know, to get to the final of the thing you've dreamed about since you were a little kid um, and to not quite make it, it's got to be the loneliest place in the world, the runner-up in a slam, because everything is about the winner. You know, it takes ages to get the ceremony and everybody's watching and you are just devastated. And and actually being the runner-up in a slam is so, so tough. I mean, it's, it's easier to lose in the first round. Yeah. Because you've got so close and you haven't quite made it. And he felt like he'd let everybody down, everybody, because he hadn't won. If you think about being a British tennis player and the larger British public who think that the whole tennis world centres around Wimbledon is, oh, but when's he going to win Wimbledon? It doesn't matter what else you've done. Yeah. You know, if you haven't won Wimbledon, hardly anybody wins Wimbledon. But yeah. you know, it's just that, oh. So he, it was, it's really, it's tough to see your kids suffering, but to watch them suffering in, in public and you just want to go and yeah. make, right, and remove them from there. But of course you can't crash the, yeah. the die ceremony, can you? So, yeah. <laughs> that, that was tough, but you know, he has always been incredibly good at bouncing back from disappointments and defeats um, ever since he was young. Um, and you know, we went off and we studied that match with Federer on the grass at Wimbledon. We studied it inside out, and three weeks later, 
when he played him in the final of the Olympics, or maybe two weeks later. Um, he, he beat him in he beat him in straight sets. So this is the thing I was saying about the whole parents thing of what can I do to help here? Right, let's get this match analyzed and let's learn from it. And right, the next time you play him, this watch for this, watch for this, watch for this. Yeah. Your support network kicks in much bigger when things go wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It feel it feels like that was almost the making of Andy to another level though. And I don't know, obviously you being so close, but it felt like he, he almost accepted I might never win a slam and almost became okay with it in front of our eyes and, and then broke down that barrier to obviously go on the Olympics, the US Open. And then, and then the following year, I've always wanted to ask you this because I've heard this story and you might tell me it's absolute nonsense. What's the truth in the story? Novak Djokovic, final 2013, Andy's two sets to love up, and people start getting your mum's shortbread out. Is it? <laughs> oh, that, that was 2016. Ah, was it? It was 2016. in the final, and he was two sets up, and uh, my mum had come down for for the final um, as had much many of the family and yeah. had brought her very famous shortbread tin down and I always sit at the end of a row so yeah. that I always sit beside one person and I don't want to sit beside anybody and nobody wants to sit beside me because I don't talk I just yeah, yeah. go like this and I've done that ever since they were small because I was always the only person that was there and if they looked up and they wanted or need encouragement of some, some sort, they always wanted to know that you were fully engaged on them and I still do it. So don't sit near me and don't talk to me. So I'm very fussy about who I will actually even allow in that seat. Yeah. yeah. Always somebody who knows don't say anything. Anyway, the, you know, it was like they all relaxed the two sets up, the short red came out, you know, everybody's oh, a bit, bit relaxed and I'm just like this. And I see the shortbread coming. My brother passed, passed the thing, and I absolutely threw him my death stare. And I said, "It's not a party, and it's not over yet. What are you doing?" <laughs> see, they don't get it because they yeah. don't. Live. They're excited by it. They're at Wimbledon. It's all fun. Uh, yeah. You know, they don't get it in the same way. This is my. This is this is our life. This whole thing, and having gone through a what we went through in 2012, my biggest fear was that the same thing would happen again and we would have to deal with the devastation. Absolutely. Really, really, you know, and as I say, that's when your emotional support kicks in. Um, so I was just, you know, I've sat, through, I've sat through so many matches over the years. It's never over till it's over. No, no, so no. never relax, never count your chickens and don't eat shit. And what happens in that box? That box is massive. I was, Andy was really kind. Uh, Liam Brody and Josh Ward Hibbert, when I was with them in 2012 Aussie Open, they'd won the boys' doubles. And Andy kindly sent a message through to the boys to say, look, well done. You know, here's some tickets to come and sit in the box to watch his semi-final with Djokovic. You know, the big absolute marathon. I think, I'm sure you were there, Judy. But anyway, it was a big, massive marathon match. <clears throat> and I walked in and my seat was directly behind Lendl. So I sat there for five and a half hours 
and the intensity in that box is is incredible and i mean i feel very privileged that i had an opportunity to to experience that and and any any false move any false look any false anything you feel as if you are having a massive impact on the match you know, so I always use that story. I'll use it more accurately now, Judy, now that I know it was 2016. But I'm pleased it's true because as a coach, I completely get that and I, and I love it. I love that you've, you've made that comment to people because it, it is an incredible change that could happen if that does happen. So how did you feel then in 2013? I mean, when Andy then did win it, you know, must have been pretty strong emotions, I would imagine. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was, for me, it was complete and utter relief that, you know, that he, he finally he managed to, to do it. Um, that we weren't going to have to go through what we went through in, in 2012. And I think just all the, the overriding emotion for me was, without question, was relief. Um, and I wish, it's one of the many things that I wish I could have enjoyed more. It, I, I know this might be quite difficult for people to understand, but it, it, when it's so much part yeah. of your and your kids' lives, and um, and it is so, it is so intense, and there is so much pressure, and there's all those years that have gone into getting to that, and I think you know, in 2013, completely washed out. It is one of the many things that they've both won, where I've wished I could have enjoyed it yeah. more. I've, I've been, I've always enjoyed. Jamie's wins more, but I think that's because he's not on the court by himself. He's always got somebody with him. Whereas with Andy, he's, he's out there and he is suffering and whatever, everything on his own. And you know, he has these running dialogues with himself because he wants somebody to talk to. So talk to yourself. Yeah. I can get all that, but yeah, relief uh, for sure. But an incredible achievement, really remarkable. And were you able to enjoy, because 2016, for the Murray family was just incredible. I mean, you know, obviously winning, winning the Grand Slams is amazing, but the year that both the boys had, you know, with the Grand Slam victories, and then if I'm, I think I'm correct in thinking they both ended the year number one. Were you able to enjoy that? Yeah, I think um, it was a it was a remarkable year. Jamie had got to number one in the world around around April, um, and he'd had. Uh, you know, he'd had the Grand Slam success with Bruno in Australia and in US Open. Um, and Andy had an incredible autumn, an incredible run through the autumn where uh, just, I think, I can't remember how many tournaments he won that year, but he probably made about 17 finals and just really put everything into the back end of the year because he sensed an opportunity to get to number one, you know, to take over. But it, I mean, you know, at the O2, where it was all going to boil down to, who did fought at the O2 uh, in November, he had this unbelievable match with Raonic, yeah. just yeah. went on forever. And it, you know, it's tough playing these big serving guys because they, you, you don't get into the rhythm the same yeah. way as you would against, um, you know, Rafa, Novak, or, uh, or, or even Federer, because it's so unpredictable. And, you know, it just, it could have swung out either very, very long time. But that was the, the match really that got him into the, the final. And then when he beat Novak in the final, it was riding on that match. He was going to be year-end world number one. And that's another thing that most people, most of us will never understand. Yeah. That's a 
once in a lifetime opportunity because you never know you're going to get that again and it's riding on one match and uh, somebody who you've known since you were 12 years old so that was I mean just I think that's one of the reasons why I've managed to stay so slim over the years it's just <laughs> of it all and I'm, I'm really quite surprised I'm still alive because it's absolutely torture and actually since 2016 I haven't really gone very often Right. I got to the stage, I stopped doing Fed Cup, I stopped going so much with the boys. That's not to say I don't go at all, but yeah. much, much less because once they got right up to the top of the game, I found it really stressful. Right, okay. My common sense wouldn't help me with it at all. It just my common sense let me down completely. Yeah. Nothing you could do about it. Control the controllables and the whatever. But you don't, and it's a parent thing. The real Judy Murray. Yeah, we've talked. We've talked a lot. As I don't just want you to be known as, as the mum of Andy and Jamie. <clears throat> Who is the real Judy Murray, and what's important to you? <laughs> um, well, I mean, tennis is a huge part of my life, but I think since I stopped doing Fed Cup in twenty sixteen and stopped travelling as much with the boys, I've really gone back to working very much in the grassroots. So. I'm very driven to get more women involved in delivering tennis. I'm very driven with my foundation to take tennis into places that you might not normally expect to find it where there isn't money and there isn't opportunity. That's a big thing for me that the profile that, that the boys have created for tennis in Scotland to try and capitalize on that and transfer that into more people, more people playing that wouldn't usually get the chance. So um, those are big things for me, the, the female side of the game and, and opening, opening tennis up in, in Scotland. Trying to get a tennis centre off the ground so I've got base to work from so I can share all those 30 years with as many people as possible and, and help to build a big, strong workforce because it's people that will make tennis strong eventually if, 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 if we get it. But I need a base to work out of now. I think my days of trekking around the country in a van are, are done. But also, I think since and certainly since Andy won Wimbledon, um, opportunities to do things like Strictly Come Dancing, um, lots of fun TV shows. I don't do all of them, but I do the ones that capture my imagination or I think they'll be good fun. Meet loads of people from different walks of life, enter into somebody else's world for a few days or a few months, depending on what it is that you're doing. So I think, uh, you know, I've got to a stage where I want to try different things. Uh, I want to meet different people. I've, I've given most of my adult life to tennis in some shape or form. And although that's, I'm never going to drop that completely, I'm very up for, for, trying, uh, for trying new things. So um, this, like I said, this lockdown has given me a little taste of what retirement uh, might be like. So, uh, and I've become decent at cooking. I'm, I'm going to do the celebrity master chef and you'll just have to wait and see if my... Uh, pasta is as bad as my salsa um but it's great fun you know and yeah you meet great people you see behind the scenes brilliant brilliant experiences and not things ever thought i'd get the chance to do no and you do a great job with it your personality comes through really really well judy quick fire round singing or dancing uh actually dancing <laughs> singles or doubles Doubles now, for sure. Three sets or five sets? Three. On court coaching or not? Not. Injury timeout or not? A tricky one. I think you have to have it. Skill, it be... skill or technique? Skill. 
one rule you would change in tennis? The uh, stop clock, the, uh, the 25 second stop clock. Will your grand, would you like your grandkids to play tennis? <laughs> um, I'd rather they learn to dance. <laughs> Judy, you've been an absolute star. Thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing speaking to you. Yeah, yeah. good luck with everything and, and we'll speak soon. Thanks a million, Judy. Good to see you, John, and you do a great job at Soto. I must come and visit you one day. You'll be always yeah. welcome. Thanks a lot, Judy. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. See you, Judy. Thank you. Bye, A massive thank you to Judy Murray for, for giving her time up and, and coming to speak to us. Um, she's always just great entertainment, Judy. Uh, obviously, she's got, got an amazing story to tell, amazing experiences that she's had, um, yet she's, she's using those experiences. Anyone that's seen her during lockdown, she's given up a time for Zoom calls, for different tennis clubs, uh, she's been on Instagram Live, and she's she's just a one to really share her her wealth of knowledge. And we're very lucky to have someone that has walked the walk and been through the levels in 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 the sport in the UK that is that is willing to give her time up. So a, a big thank you to Judy. We hope you guys thoroughly enjoyed listening and took a lot lot from it. Keep, keep liking, keep rating, reviewing, keep doing your thing to support Get This Podcast out there. Um, my name is Dan Kiernan, my co-host, John McGann. We are Control the Controllables. Thanks, guys. <laughs>